Hey, 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 guys, we are finally back with our brand new same old podcast. Welcome to Last Words, and it's been a bit of an absence for us. We went away for a couple of years. Say we, I just mean me. Um, Life got in the way, but a few people asked us to come back, and I'm more than delighted to say I'm back in the driving seat getting to chat to some amazing people so over the next couple of weeks you're going to get a chance to hear some of the interviews that we've done for this Lost Words podcast. Now when we did this before it was a quite a somber feel to it and if I'm honest I want to change it up a little bit because it needs to be a bit more fun. We all need a bit more fun in our lives these days definitely with everything going on. I'd like to introduce you to the new and improve Lost Words podcast. Welcome to Hidden Success Stories. Let's get started with our first guest. Now, this guy is everything a parent would be happy to have as a son. He's a doctor, he's on television, he's got an Instagram following, and he's known as the Fly Doctor, swooping in, saving lives, and swooping out like a modern day handsome superhero. It's Dr. Daniel Alaya, and this is what we chatted about when I caught up with him earlier. Again, thank you so much for getting involved and jumping on board and and chatting to me this evening. Um, so, I, the first question is, who is Dr. Daniel Alaya? If you can sum up yourself in just in a few few sentences, how would you describe yourself? <laughs> Apart from a very charming and ridiculously handsome man. <laughs> um, thank you for the question. Far too kind. Um, so, who am I? Who am I? Um, I'd answer that question in saying what I do because I think what you do makes who you are. So, um, I'm an NHS doctor, um, have been for the last seven years. Um, very passionate about medicine, really enjoy medicine. Um, I'm also very passionate about uh, science communication and, and teaching and spreading a general positive message, um, which usually involves something to do with health. And I'm an adventurer. I like traveling and I like exposing myself to challenges because I feel challenges, in, cha- in those challenges, you know, we, we find out who we are and, and we experience life for, for what it's meant to be, which is a roller coaster and, a, and an adventure. That's good. I like the sound of that. Um, and it sums up quite neatly all the things that you've done and how you've gotten to where you are today. But I want us to take us back, way back to when you were little Daniel. Tell us about growing up. Where did you grow up in the country? What was that like? So I was born in Hackney, um, in Hamilton Hospital. Um, parents uh, came through from Nigeria a few years prior. Um, father was a doctor, mother's a nurse, um, and standard, you know, Nigerian immigrant family uh, come to uh, improve their uh, chances. Um, but to be fair, I think they were having a pretty good life in Nigeria. Um, but I think medical opportunities were, were better here and training opportunities. Um, anyway, we moved to North London uh, shortly after that, a place called Barnet, 
Um, and there, uh, we lived till I uh, was about 10 years old. I have a twin brother. I have an old brother. I have an old sister. There's, there's four of us. I think being in a four-sibling household was quite uh, important for our upbringing and shaping who we are. Uh, when you're such close proximity, you know, uh, there's a bit of competition, you know, you know, just by itself. There's a few more things to think about. Um, and I think that that decides a, a lot, to be honest. And there's, there's a lot to be said for that. And then, of course, there's being a twin. Um, being a twin, all of a sudden, you know, there's, there's two of you. And even though, even though you might look the same, even though you might be identical, you know, you're two different people. Do you think that drives your com- the competition though? So I know. So what the listeners won't necessarily know is that you and I have a bit of a history together. But I would consider you quite a competitive individual. Um, do you think being a twin pushed that? Do you, were you guys pitted against each other, or were you more collaborative rather than competitive? I think we were definitely very uh, competitive. Uh, fortunately and unfortunately, um, you know, competition isn't always uh, sweet, um, but uh, competition, I think, always concludes um, in, in, in positive ways um, for, for the winner. So, yeah, you know, I would say, you know, being compared in almost everything that we do physically, uh, mentally, academically, um, makes someone quite competitive and it, it depends how they deal with it with that competition and that comparison to what that competition looks like I think fortunately um, things seem to be pretty even with us so it, it was a positive outcome I know certain individuals certain twins um, competition isn't always a healthy thing and it can lead to lots of problems unfortunately but for us Fairly positive. I would say I, I, I hope I hope uh, uh, competition and, and my competitive nature doesn't uh, show itself in an ugly way because I think sometimes com- com- you know, competitive people, uh, particularly in medicine, particularly in you know, academia, I think it can show itself in, a, in an ugly way. Um, so I hope that's not me. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. And so, t- ten years old, living in North London, do, is that where you continue to live, or did you guys move out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there to about 10 years old. And then um, as uh, we were moving on to secondary school, we applied to many, many, and did exams for many, many different grammar schools. Um, but it just um, it happened that my, my father was, was working um, as a doctor in Devon. He was doing a rotation, and there was a really good school there, or a grammar school. And she said, you know, we should go and do the exam. So we went to do the exam, we got in, and then we moved down to Devon. Um, that was me and my brother. Our older siblings, they stayed in London. So, you know, we had a bit of a fracture of a family because of that. And that's interesting, actually, if you look at that, because, of course, just because of school, just because of education, you know, we completely separated our family um, in quite a dramatic way, to be honest, quite a dramatic way. Yeah. Um, and that, that kind of led, led us on this course where we are now. Um, who knows, had we stayed in London, at what school we would have gone to. We went to a very good school in Devon, and uh, then uh, we were in Devon. And of course, Devon is very different to London. <laughs> many, many different ways. Yeah, of course. As, as we know, so we were in Torquay, the English Riviera. Uh, and we were there, you know, we have been there for the last 20 years. Um, we were there for 20 years. I went to university there as well. 
Um, and shortly after us moved there, so 2003, that was when the rest of my family came, um, like three, four years after. So the whole family joined you over there. So they probably felt that you guys were having a good quality of life. And would you say that you felt that your quality of life was better than it was in London? Um, uh, I, I wouldn't say that. No, I, I wouldn't say that. No quality of life, you know. In London, we were enjoying ourselves. We could do everything we wanted to do. Uh, as far as I was concerned, you know, we had everything we needed. But when, you know, when you're talking about academia, when you're talking about school, I think it's, it's, it's very obvious and it's very clear, you know, as far as I'm concerned, things are on a very linear scale. You know, social opportunities, academic opportunities, uh, teacher-student time, teacher-student ratios, and opportunity to do well, and and being surrounded by other people who want to do well as well. Um, and I think in London, when you go to a, a comprehensive school, uh, particularly in inner city areas, there's not really that. Mm-hmm. And the school that we went to, we had everything we needed, and it, we didn't need to pay for it. It was a grammar school. It's the best of both. Um, so. Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't say that's quality of life, but I would say the quality of education, absolutely. And, and there was less distractions. In London, there's a lot of distractions, lots to worry about, lots to think about. When you go to school in the country, you go to school, you come back, you focus on playing sports, you focus on getting into the rugby team, you focus on doing your work, you come home, you get, you get your homework done, maybe you play outside. You, know, you don't need to worry about all the things you worry about when you're in London. You just, you just crack on. And as a kid, though, did you feel... Did you feel like you were missing out on the experiences maybe that your brother and your sister were having in London? The the kind of the excitement and the buzz? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, and, and, and I think that was probably a lucky thing because we, we went before we understood about the, the great things about London, before, before we knew the attraction that people have to London. Um, we knew London was a capital city, but as far as we were concerned, we just wanted to have a good time and be in school and, and play PlayStation and, and have a good time with our friends. Um, we obviously we, we knew that Devon was uh, wasn't very multicultural, so we were the only blacks there. Um, but we, there was two of us; we were twins, you know. So that wasn't really an issue, to be honest. Um, so I think we 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 left at the sweet spot of our uh, growth. We went. We really left that the sweet spot between uh, seven and eight years old. Had we left later than that, I think there would be an attachment towards London because because we would have understood um, the, the the great things about London and, and why people stay in London because of the, the variety and the excitement and the things to do there. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so you you've touched on on going from quite. Uh, international cosmopolitan city like London to Devon and you say that you didn't feel as if you didn't notice as much of the the cultural shift and um, being the only black family in that area or is that correct that were you the only black family in that area yeah or the yeah. only black guys yeah. in your in your in your in your school up until you went to university yeah yeah and only, so only blacks in the village. Yeah, exactly. So I always call it a cocoa pop and a bowl of milk because that's what it feels like. And um, <laughs> and and did you ever feel feel as if that? Did you feel? Did you experience much racism? Did you experience much prejudice? Being that family, the one that obviously stand out quite significantly in that area. Yeah. So 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 I think racism 
you know, it's, on reflection, it's, it's, it's a funny thing because I can't stand up and say that the harsh, raw racism that you see in films and movies, like, I never experienced that. You know, people didn't holler at me from across the road saying the N-word and things like that. I've never really experienced that. But what I would say I have experienced is a special type of institutionalized racism whereby uh, it's easy and people find it easy to uh, attribute certain behaviors to you because you're black and you never really know, to be honest, because maybe it was because you were doing something or maybe it was because, you know, they just have this preconception in their mind that you're more likely to do that. And then you're seven, you're eight, you're nine, you know, when we were still kids and sort of growing up, you know, boys will be boys. You know, I think that there, there was sometimes a bit of prejudice and sometimes blaming things on us because um, a bit of prejudice towards, you know, the whole black boy thing, black boy troublemaker thing. So what type of things would they blame on you guys? Um, I, I remember, I remember once upon a time, um, this was the first day of school, in year, in year 10, and the head of house came into the classroom and she asked me to stand outside. And I was like, what have I done? What's this about? And she said, you were bullying at year seven. I was, and I was like, what? I'm bullying year seven on the first day. Uh, how, does, how does that work? You haven't got time. <laughs> That's the thing. And so, so number one, it wasn't me who had this, who had this interaction with this other student it was my twin brother that's, that's the first thing that that sounds like it's a convenient right. cop-out yeah and <laughs> <laughs> I'm just playing I'm just playing but it sounds okay. a bit convenient <laughs> no, no okay fair fair fair, fair. Um, but it, it wasn't me so I, I had no clue what would happen and then when you know I actually talked to my brother and he, and he explained what actually happened he said that he was laughing and joking with another student and and the boy who was passing by, I think um, the, the color of his hair was ginger. He thought they were laughing at him, but they actually they actually weren't. And to be honest, that's not really something that we, we would make a joke about. To be fair, just because it's, it's not really something that would just come to our minds. We didn't really we didn't care about things like that. To be honest, so it didn't make sense for for that to have been an accusation. To be honest, but but the the fact still remains that I think there was a uh, likelihood and propensity to attribute bullying uh, behaviours towards us because of what, what prejudice they might have. And also, when perhaps we had an altercation with someone, um, you know, it, it easily turned into bullying. No, he's calling me names and I'm calling his, him names. We, me and him are fighting. There's no bullying here. I don't like him. He doesn't like me. Who's the bully? Who's <laughs> the bully? There's no bully here. Yeah. We, we, we're arguing. You know? No, I get, I get that when people, I do find that sometimes when when two people of two different races are arguing, when people try to jump to someone's defense, there is that kind of moment where they think, are you doing that because this person's this color? And like, no, this guy thinks I'm an ass because he thinks I'm an ass. I happen to be this color and he thinks I'm an ass. I think he's an ass because he's an ass and he happens to be that color. And sometimes some people can't seem to to split the two. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and it's insidious. It's insidious because no one ever mentions the word black. 
Don't ever mention anything. They just say, you know, bully, or they say, oh, this child's disruptive. Um, and and honestly, to be honest, we never know because, you know, everyone's different. Everyone has their own point of view. You, you never know. Maybe maybe they didn't have a prejudice, but that was just how I felt looking back. And at the time, actually weighing up the pros and the cons of the actually that did seem a little bit odd, to be honest. Um, and I think. I think, to be honest, I probably had that throughout my uh, academic experience within school and within medicine. Um, do I hold it against anyone? Absolutely not. Am I bitter? Absolutely not. Will it stop me? Absolutely not. It is what it is. You crack on, you deal with it, you move on. Quite right. And I love that, I love that determination and I love that, 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 that fortitude it builds on you. What I've got to ask, as someone who grew up in an African household, and having friends who were predominantly white, in my case Scottish, they found it quite, the, the African traditions, they found it quite unusual or just different, which is understandable. Did you, did your friends growing up find it strange, some of the things that, that how do I put this, being in an African household is quite different from growing up in a British household from everything I can see. Did you, a lot of your friends find it quite strange, some of the things that you guys would do that were different from them or or anything at all? The, the story that comes to my mind is food, where everything my friends ate when I was growing up was beige. And I thought it was kind of great because we had lots of African meals, we had lots of, lots of soup, we had this, that and the other, and of course jollof rice. And then my friends would always be around at the house for, for dinner and I, I didn't get it. They just wanted to have African food. And then one day, this this boy in my street, Scott, said said to my mum, oh, what, what are you going to cook for dinner? And um, she said, oh, it's been a long day, Scott. I'm going to make some, um, some, some fish fingers and some chips and some baked beans. And Scott went, oh, all right, okay, cool, cool, cool. And then he started, he put his shoes on and, and left the house. And my mum wow. opened the door and said, oh, Scott, come back. I thought you were staying for dinner. He's like, I can get that in my house. I come here for the soup and walked away. <laughs> Are you, you serious? Serious. And this kid was 10 years wow. old. Exactly. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> so, did you ever have those sorts of experiences with your friends and the African, specifically Nigerian culture? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a really, really positive example that you just shared with me, to be fair. My examples were nothing like that, to be fair. Um, you know, when we had friends around uh, and we were just playing and having fun, um, one would always offer uh, some jollof rice and things like that. But my friends were a bit sheepish, actually. They, they weren't really ready to try a different foods, even though she did dull down the the pepper um, and the spice, um, you know, <laughs> I, can't, I, I, can't, I can't say they were very fond of it. Um, and, but, you know, they were, they were always very intrigued and uh, always commented on um, the, way we, the way we did things. Like, for example, you know, if, if we were playing games for two long, one would come in and start shouting. And, and obviously that's, that's very different to what, to what they experienced. Um, but yeah, yeah, all, all the standard stuff, really. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, okay, so high school obviously did well academically, and then went off to university. You did medicine at Peninsula College of Medicine and Dentistry between Plymouth and Exeter. It's a very long title. Um, what was your experience like there? 
Yeah, you know, uh, just to highlight, you mentioned this part, um, did well academically in school. So, I mean, anybody that obviously goes into medicine or dentistry has to, you know, do well in inverted commas. Um, but for me, that, 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 that road wasn't, wasn't easy at all. Um, and uh, it was, I had to retake a lot of exams. Um, and it, AS level wasn't easy at all. Um, it was a struggle getting the predicted grades that I wanted. Um, and I was actually predicted way lower than what I actually got. Um, and that caused a lot of issues I felt with my offers or with my interviews that I got because a lot of it is based on predictions. Um, and it's it's funny looking back at my uh, school report, actually what they were saying, because it doesn't match up at all with, with what's actually happened. Um, so it, it, it would seem that they didn't really have a lot of faith in me. Um, and whatever reason that was, I, I, I don't know. Um, but um, it's, 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 it's good to see that that, that was overcome. Um, medical school uh, was, was brilliant. I, I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, I think that academic challenge, uh, to, to this day, I still think A-levels was the hardest academic challenge I'll ever have to do. <laughs> uh, I haven't had anything harder than that. I mean, these are, these are anesthetic exams that I'm doing now. They're, they're quite something. They're quite something. But I still say A-levels were harder um, and that whole situation was, was a lot more intense than, than, than what I'm doing now. But um, yeah, medical, medical school was great. I just felt the whole, the whole thing was, was, uh, <laughs> was a big party. That I, I didn't think the exams were that hard. Um, and there was so much opportunity. I, was, I just had a great time. So much opportunity. That's fantastic. Yeah. And obviously, you did it down in the Southwest. After you finished med school, did you stay in the Southwest or did you move on? So, so I I got I got sent I got sent to Aberdeen. When you say you got sent, it sounds like you went to someone's office and and you went with a bag and said, "Where am I going today, sir?" And they said, they just got a map of the country and just pointed, and they they pointed really far north and they thought, "I'll bring it down a little bit," and then you end up in Aberdeen. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in, in my mind, it was pretty much like that. Yeah, no, um, uh, it was Aberdeen. Specifically, Aberdeen was actually at the bottom of my list for places to go to. I didn't, I didn't want to go to Scotland, um, not because I don't like Scotland, but because it was, it was just far away from where I wanted to be in London. Because what I wanted to focus on, which was which was business. Um, so, but because uh, I I didn't get a high enough score to in my F class to actually choose where I wanted to go, so I, I got wherever they they, they gave me. Um, and yeah, starting F1 was an interesting experience. Um, I think because because during medical school, I, I spent so much time doing extracurricular activities and and developing myself outside medicine and as and uh, what I like to think as a complete person. Uh, I would say I neglected medicine, but but I I, I just did enough. I, I did enough to pass. I, I did enough to get through. Um, which meant that actually I wasn't a complete I wasn't a complete uh, doctor when I when I entered F one and really who is who's who's ready for the, who's ready for that jump um, particularly when you go to a new country with a whole new uh, sort of you know social sort of cues and, and, and things like that so yeah starting F one was, was I found it very very tough and getting used to it, it, was, it was a big it was a big jump for me um, and. Uh, I think uh, being in, in, in such a place as Aberdeen Royal Infirmary 
uh, didn't really make it easy. easy. You know, I, I felt there was, I felt, looking back, I felt there was uh, a lot of institutionalized racism. And since, since then, since then, that has been, um, that has been reinforced by more and more people saying this, even white people, even white people who, 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 have, who have met, and they've actually brought it up themselves. And actually, <clears throat> I don't, I don't say that lightly. I mean, we've thrown around a few words already in this in this interview, and I and I don't throw I don't throw those words around lightly. You know, I think they should carry enough weight. I think anyone who's making those claims should, you know, think about the weight in which they carry. And uh, and despite that, I'm still saying that. I think that place is. I think it was. It was quite toxic, and because, and, and not just to to black people, to to Asian people as well, to anybody who was different, you know, you know, seeing that there was like a scapegoat mentality, um, and that's unfortunate. Um, but I feel I think that's something that they're, that they're working on. Um, so for me, for me, um, because it was my first experience of, of medicine, I thought that was the way medicine was, and yeah, I thought it was like that everywhere. Fortunately, it wasn't. Um, but I thought it was like that everywhere, and I thought, mm, I'm not really sure this is for me. And the, 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 the clinical part, that's great. The clinical part is always going to stay the same, and it's always going to be interesting and challenging in some way. But your relationship and your um, inter-working sort of relationships with, with, with your colleagues, that I think that is the key thing which is vital in anyone's career, particularly in medicine. When you're working so close in such a stressful, uh, you know, fast-paced, intense environment, I think that's 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 the thing which really, uh, you know, changes and decides whether you're going to enjoy your job and really have fulfillment in your job. Um, so I'm hard, and, and because of that, I escaped to back to Peninsula. Um, it wasn't easy to escape, but I I got an F2 post back in Peninsula where. Uh, everything was a lot better and, and I, I started to really enjoy medicine. Okay. No, I don't want to, I don't want to sit on the point too much, but obviously you're talking about institutionalized racism. And one of the things I've, I've been asked from people is when, when anyone mentions institutionalized racism, one of the things they ask for, what sort of examples can they, can you share or can you put a spotlight on that maybe not necessarily happened to you, someone that you know that can, that kind of just, just kind of elucidate exactly what that looked like? Got it, got it, got it, sure. So I think uh, using my experience in the NHS, uh, it's obviously a big, very big institution. I think examples quite clear. So number one, um, being told that you're talking in an aggressive manner when you're just talking, um, uh, being told you have communication issues, um, being told that, being told you have communication issues, but not being specific as to what exactly those communication issues are. Very vague, very very vague uh, criticism of um, your personality or your interworking. Um, sort of skills, um, relationships with, with other people, um, and the, the the more vague it is, I think 
the more evidence that, that there is to say it kind of means nothing. There needs to be evidence to, to say why when you're criticizing someone and, and, and if, if there's no evidence, or if there's no specific evidence where you can't explain to the person, okay, you're doing this wrong and you do this better. Um, I feel that there's a lot of that. Um, and also the fact that, you know, sometimes, you know, as an F1, you're learning, you're, you're learning, you know, you're a junior member. And if you feel that you might do something um, and if your colleague does the same thing, no one cares, no one bats an eyelid. But if you do it all of a sudden, it's a huge issue and everyone's, everyone's, you know, put their hands up and thinking, okay, what's going on here? This person has a real issue. I think, I think, um, you know, I think that that's how institutionalized racism sort of shows itself. It's all about the patience. Yeah, the old woman, you know, call, call, <laughs> calling you a monkey or saying she doesn't want to be treated by you. That's, that's not a big deal. Deal with that. You can prepare for that. It's, 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 when you, it's when your supervisor says you're aggressive. It's when your supervisor says, says you know, it's when your peers, you know, do things like that. Um, and, and, and it's just right, to be honest. Example, another example I had was, was um, I was sending out my tabs. I was sending out my tabs um, for feedback. And everyone knows that you send your tabs to people that like you. <laughs> you send, you, you, you ask people that like you to give you feedback. Uh, unfortunately, that's the way it is. Uh, but that, that's, that's what you do and you get good feedback and you pass and you do well um, but anyway um, I did that um, and one of the tubs that I sent out was one of the consultants um, it seemed from what, what was written down that when they were discussing this tab he said I don't really know this doctor that well so I'm going to defer to my registrar <laughs> who I didn't ask for a tab and this registrar um, who obviously I didn't ask this tab for a tab for, for, for very specific reasons proceeded to uh, give me very very horrendous feedback and the question um, I would ha- ask is then is that typical for an assessment to be referred or deferred to someone else absolutely not and, absolutely not. and after that point right. have you ever has that ever happened to you at all? No, because I, I learned from my mistakes. You know, there's, there's an element of naivety. You know, can I, can, I, can I call that racism? Probably not, to be honest. Probably not. You know, not, 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 not blatant. It's, I, think, I, don't, I don't think it's ever blatant, to be honest. I think it's, I think it's uh, a feeling and it's an um, amalgamation of lots of things happening. And just you know, you've seen the environment and, and things just you know thinking that's that's probably it's probably not right for that to be happening. It doesn't really make sense to be honest. Um, if you, if you know what I mean. Um, I've, I've got something I want to pick up on actually that's quite interesting, and and this might be this might be one hard to answer for you, but it might be also hard for for listeners who might who might not be a minority to understand so one of the things you said was that when a patient would say an old lady would call you a monkey or something like that so uh, a clear racist racial racial slur and that 
is easy enough to to just to dust off and move on. But this other thing that that's a lot harder to pin down, that that bothers you more than someone being outwardly and clearly racist. Why is that? And I know that's not the easiest thing in the world to answer, but but why does that bother you more? Why is the, the woman calling you a monkey? Why does that not anger you equally? Yeah, I, don't, I think it doesn't anger me or equally. I, you know, I, I feel indifferent about it, to, to be honest, because because it has no bearing on my, my future, my present, or my past, and it's nothing to do with me at all whatsoever. It's not personal. That person does not know me, and it's not going to hinder me in my life whatsoever. It's not going to cause any outward effect to me in any way, um, except what what. How, how I feel in that moment in time. So, yeah, it's not going to hinder me at all. And if you compare that to my peers and my colleagues um, doing things like that, you know, that, that can hinder me in, in a very, very huge and, and uh, devastating way. Um, and also, you know, any any medical professional takes pride in their work and they're very passionate about it. Um, and uh, at the time, I wasn't saying it. This is racist. I wasn't. I was. I wasn't throwing around those big words. I. I. I, I wasn't because I was in the moment. I could. I didn't have a bird's eye view. I couldn't see things. I didn't. I didn't know how things were were supposed to be. And at that time, I thought, okay, maybe I'm not that good. You know, maybe this and, and maybe that and you know, blah blah blah. You know, um, I wasn't thinking. Oh, this is unfair. I was. I was just in the situation. It's only when I when I look back in hindsight and I see the truth of the situation and I and I can see that this. Uh, these incidents are repeated time and time again with other people. I can see that that, that was racist. You know, the BMA said it themselves. The BMA said it that it's institutionalized racism within within the NHS. They, they said it. So it's when I look back and, 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 and that's when it's when it's clear to me. Um, so that's why that's why um, when it comes from your peers and your colleagues, it's it's so much worse than from random people. Even what they say it might be might sound worse. Yeah, I get, and I get exactly what you mean. I just thought it was a really interesting point because I think on the on the subjects, especially on racism, and I think we'll move on after this, but lots of people... I, I do wonder if lots of people think it is when someone will say this, that, and the other to you in the street and, and that to a lot of people is racism. When many people say, I'm not racist, it's because they've never said that to anyone. That's why they assume they're not racist. And argue, you could also argue, you could say to someone, someone could say, I'm not, I'm not sexist because I've never said anything like that to a woman. But misogyny and discrimination of any kind isn't necessarily just in what you say to people. It's the actions and how you continue to live your life and how that affects other people. And I think that I think that's a really powerful sentiment, and it's really interesting because because it's so hard to describe without going into a conversation, just to tell someone that that this is racism because of all those things we've talked about. Yes, what that old woman might have said is racism, but there's a difference, and this is why it matters so much, and it's fascinating. So. You left Aberdeen. You came back down. You went back down to Peninsula, to to the southwest, to to the sunny, to the English Riviera, um, and then take us through your journey from there. Yeah, and, and then I started to get passionate about medicine. I did um, neurosurgery. I did a bit of GP. Did a bit of A&E, and medicine really came alive. Um, and it started to get really, really fun. 
that was when I started to carve out okay, what I actually wanted to do. Unfortunately, I, I, was, I did have a bad taste in my mouth from what I experienced in Scotland about medicine in, in general. Um, so I thought, yeah, even though I like medicine, even though this is, this, is, this is quite cool, I don't like being in a situation where something that bad can happen to me and I have no control. But me, me at, at my big age, after everything that I've lived through, after all the hard work that, that I've done, that I can go to, I can be sent to Scotland and, and that can happen to me. <laughs> wow, why, why would I put myself in this situation? I'm in control of what happens to me. Uh, like I'm in control, so I'm not going to put myself in a in a weak, uh, vulnerable position like I was in 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 Scotland, where I had no control. So I'm gonna I'm gonna carve my own path. And if that's if that's outside medicine, then, then that's outside medicine. If that's outside the NHS, then that's outside the NHS. Um, so even though I was enjoying medicine a little bit more, um, like I said, I did have a bad taste. So I said I, I thought to myself, you know, what other opportunities are there? That was when I started to look outside. Um, and uh, I found some other opportunities um, working with my degree as a doctor, but in, in the private sector. Um, and uh, I started working for a medical assistance company. Um, and in that role, I was dealing with uh, evacuations, medical evacuations, repatriations, and um, interesting medical situations all around the world, in Asia, Africa, um, on oil rigs, um, and and. It really, it really gave me a, a good sort of uh, bird's eye view on, on, on what medicine was and the breadth of medicine um, outside the four walls of a hospital um, and in the private sector as well. So I did that for a year alongside sort of locoming, um, and I also uh, explored um, actually taking sick patients, transferring them um, on airplanes. And I thought actually I like I like the idea of doing this. Um, maybe I could do this at a high level. Um, so it was it was at that stage that I thought, okay, how do I how do I explore this field of, of medicine, um, and how do I get better at it? And obviously, that's what led me to where I am now, doing anaesthetics. Um, uh, so I didn't do anaesthetics because I I liked it and I liked the idea of being an anaesthetist. <laughs> I'm doing anaesthetics because I want to transport and I want to evacuate critically ill patients. Uh, that's it. I, I want to do that. I want to do that at a high level. So that's why I stepped into um, training. Um, and I, I felt that gave me a lot of direction, gave me a lot of um, you know, uh, courage. And, and also, uh, just I, knew, I always knew why I was doing what I was doing. Um, and now, of course, things have opened up. So there's a lot more things I find attractive in medicine. and. Uh, acute medicine and anesthetics um, and crit critical care, intensive care medicine, um, but that was my entry point. Okay, that that's um, uh, that's fascinating. I always think it's interesting to listen to people's how they think about the how their the, their perceptions of the NHS working in it. And then also when they step outside, it's interesting you said outside the four walls of a hospital. To me, it's also outside the four walls of the NHS because. There's certain things that are expected of you as someone that works within the NHS and certain pathways. And, and I feel that sometimes people feel like, okay, you need to be blinkered and you need to go down a set path. But when you, you, when you take a step to the side, you realise, right, okay, here we go, that all these different things that we can do, um, the majority of people that work in the NHS, obviously, quite, they're, they're intelligent, they're gifted, they, 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 they've worked hard. 
and for so many people I know to have wanted to just be pigeonholed really quickly and they've gotten to a point and they've gone, oh, actually, the whole time I've, I've had so many other options. I find that in other sectors, people are less like that. But there's obviously, there's a trade-off and there's a sacrifice. When, you, when, you are, when you're a doctor in the health service, there's a set path. And if you, if you want to, there's a certain security that you can just follow. So there is, there is that trade-off. But I, I do wonder, does it come at expense of being able to be a bit more dynamic? Can we get people looking at different things? And maybe that would seep into the NHS and, and maybe make it grow and adapt more than more more than it has done so far. And I'm not bashing NHS at all in the slightest. It's just it's just a thought that I have. But I know one of the things you did when you were at university was business. So let's talk about that for a second. Tell me about mm-hmm. obviously business is, is kind of where my heart is at. So tell me more about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um the idea that wanted to make sports nutrition more affordable and uh, more available to young people um, you know trying to achieve the results in the gym um, that that took the form of a vending machine that dispensed protein shakes um, and uh, we entered this market at a perfect time so it was a mixture of luck and timing um, and us being the right stage and us, us having the, uh, enough time. So we created, we produced a, a machine which, which did this. Um, we, got in, we got investment from our universities and um, we took loans out ourselves. We, took, we, 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 we truly put our money where our mouths were um, because we thought, okay, number one, this is something that we would use. Number two, this is a good business opportunity. And number three, um, you know, let's explore, let's go on an adventure with business. Um, Who else is in the venture with you? So it was my twin brother okay. and a friend of ours. So there was three of us, um, three of us. Um, and everywhere we went, everywhere we took the idea, we get a lot of support for it. So that was why we sort of started it because it just made sense to us. Um, so alongside this innovation that we were uh, producing, we were getting a patent for, we were getting manufactured, we were making prototypes for, you know, we were doing the tweaks and the fixes for, because it's, it's engineering, that's what it comes down to. We're not the engineers, but we're working with the engineers to actually make this work to produce what we wanted to, 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 to do. You know, we'd come back from placement and, you know, we'd go to the, the, the lab and was, we, we would be on the phone with our engineers and, you know, there were times when, we, we had a, a little sort of workstation in one of the garages in Liverpool where my brother stayed and it would just be using screwdrivers and trying to fix, trying to, you know, trying to get it where we wanted to, to get it to. And um, it was it was a real good experience and obviously we believed in it. But what my point was was that we need to couple this with a brand. So we found that, yeah, great, this, 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 this uh, product, this prototype, this has legs. But in order to get the money flowing and to get cash flow, we need to associate that with the brand and to make money through the brand. So we made this brand called Proton. And uh, this was based on the concept that you can be successful as long as you're productive and you're time efficient with your time. And this worked very well because we were medical students, but we were running business. So we, we truly embodied the idea of, of, of Proton, productive, productivity and time efficiency. And being in academic universities, Exeter, uh, Liverpool, um, you know, 
we had a lot of support uh, of that idea. So we coupled that with a, a clothing brand. Um, and actually, we, because we, we used this branding to really sell this message and did that effectively through social media. And this is when social media wasn't what it is today. It was just coming up. And we, we rolled that curve. Again, we, were, we, we hit that curve um, at a very good time. You know when not many people were and there was a point where we were fighting and uh we were of i would probably i would say um similar standing to to gymshark actually okay um <laughs> that's claim to fame uh one, one time we uh, were at exhibition where they were also and they came to see our stand where we were selling clothes and we had a we had a big crowd uh around our store, um, uh, you know, because we were doing an exhibition or something, and Jewish Club came, and they, they were accusing us of, of copying their branding. <laughs> and, and if anything, we were proud of it, because they were worried about us. Yeah, right. <laughs> they, they, they were worried about branding, and, and if, if your competitors are worried about your branding and, and making it very clear that, they, that they're worried about your branding, then you must be doing something right. Exactly. Well, of course. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there were different elements of this business that were coming together, um, and um, I think you know the, the lessons that it taught us were were were, in, were invaluable. You know, um, the whole process of starting the business, the whole process of managing the team, the whole process of branding, the whole process of converting that branding to money and cash flow, and making a, a, a business model that actually works, um, and having a pipeline of money. Um, and knowing how much debt you're, you're, you're happy to go into before you start making money um, is, is, is all valuable. Um, so that was good. And then what happened with the, with the Proton brand? Mm. So we got investment um, around fourth year, so that was 2014. Um, so we had a private investor invest in our company. That was good because we could do a lot of stuff that we, we wanted to do. But unfortunately, um, there, was a, there was a misunderstanding, there was a, those arguments and those issues, there was a falling out, things turned a little bit sour. And of course, this came at a very bad time because we were starting foundation training in, in, in hospital. Um, so, you know, there were lots of different things pulling us. I mean, we just talked about <laughs> my time in Aberdeen School and I was there on the ward doing night shifts, you know, get, getting attacked. Um, and at the same time, I was worrying about cash flow forecasts and making sure the equity split is right and making sure that the money's coming in, the balance sheet is green instead of red. Um, so I was focusing on a lot of things, which was diminishing my my quality of work in, in, in all things really, um, and not not in a not in an exciting or adventurous manner. It was it just it just wasn't good. Um, but fortunately, we were able to. Uh, exit the company um, and, and, and sell our shares um, and, and have something left over to, to afford. That's what we did. So we, 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 we sold that to the investor um, and we were able to, to, to move on. Um, of course, with a, with a tear in our eye, but at the end of the day, um, with experience, which was invaluable. Yeah, exactly. You've, you've learned so much from that. And and people always ask about business and running businesses and, and they'll ask some simple questions or some complex questions, but the majority of them can be answered by saying, go run a business. 
and you'll 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 quite quickly find out a lot of these answers because it's stressful even when it's really really good there's there's a, there's a certain level of stress involved mm-hmm. and um, when you're trying to couple that with any sort of clinical activity it's it just compounds very very quickly absolutely 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 and i think i think the 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 point which all novices or anyone in business or any in any discipline any hobby whatever want to get to is to be able to learn vicariously you know learn from other people learn from other people's mistakes because making mistakes in business expensive and, it, and it's not nice it's ugly it's horrible and and some people can't afford to make mistakes depending on what stage of life you're in um so learning vicariously you know i, I think i think that that is is the peak of you know doing any skill or learning learning any skill you know learn from other people's mistakes and people have done it before you people people succeeded people failed before you learn from them yeah, that's why so many people talk about having a mentor and utilizing that. One of um, our mutual acquaintances, um, Devo, also another doctor, always talks about her, the trajectory of anyone in their career. Utilizing a mentor will will propel you pretty quickly, because one of the things a mentor will do is is just tell you how it is and say, if you do that, this is the likely outcome. Now, obviously, you can still choose to do that. But I'm telling you right now, it's going to end up like this. And then it's up to you to follow that advice or not follow that advice, in addition to the other things that mentors can do. And I think that 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 is one of that is one of the things that having a mentor in business really helps with. It helped me at one point making a decision, a really difficult decision when it was come when it was um, choosing a finance option. I felt that I had done so much with some with certain people that I had to go down a particular route, and it was got a lot of money and person I went to became a mentor and said to me you don't owe them a damn thing you don't put your hand in your pocket you don't know them- oh, how much have you put your hand in your pocket for I said a few thousand pounds right fine are you happy to walk away from that and I said well yes this is a better deal and he said well do it and I said but 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 um he said stop stop do you do, do they own anything and I said no and I said right okay do you owe them anything and I said no he said right go do the right thing but having someone to tell you to do that because that would have been a very costly mistake for me. So, so yeah, that 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 mentor, that that vicarious learning, super important. But mm. I want to switch now to the fly doctor and your media appearances and your face everywhere I go. Every time I look at my phone, you're just there all the time, and I enjoy looking at your face. And so it's great. It's actually quite nice. Um, <laughs> Tell us what you're up to and what are the plans like? What what what's happening? Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I guess you know from, from what we've talked about so far, you can see the business um, sort of mindset that I have, and, and, and I think um, having had the experience and understood the power of social media, um, I thought it was very important to create my brand. Um, this was around 2016. I'd always been on Instagram, but I, and I understood the power of Instagram through through Proton, through creating a community, and through through uh, fostering that community and and creating a business. Actually, saying things to that community who know and who trust you, and you know what they want. You know what they want, and I feel the most powerful thing that we have the super almost the superpower of you know millennials 
is social media. I thought that's what that's what makes us different, and actually it is a superpower because all of a sudden, you know, people are creating businesses from social media, and we were the first ones to actually jump onto it, um, and and you know, we're still able to do that. Um, so so around 2016, I, I thought, okay, I need to make a brand. And I thought, who am I? And and what do I do? And where am I going? And that created the Fly Doctor. And the Fly Doctor is a brand. You know, it's, it's not me. You know, I'm a person. I'm a human being. You know, but the, the 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 Fly Doctor is a person who goes on adventures, um, who enjoys medicine, who teaches medicine, and uh, who shares adventures and tries to inspire people. Um, and and that's what that brand is about. So and that's what's being pushed across all social media channels. Um, I, I, I say very specifically that I distinguish the flight up to brand between me because it's important to know the limits and boundaries of social media. And that's, and that's a whole other conversation, but it's very, you know, I think it's very, it's, it's very important for people to understand that, you know? Um, but yeah, so, so created a brand. Um, and uh, of course, on, on top of that, I've, I've always had a footing within media, within TV, you know, at the age of... 12, 8, I was, I was on repeater. I was doing stuff on camera. That was, that was always a string to my bow. Um, so it just made sense that, that, that I do the same thing. And because I'd been doing things like that for such a long time, I'd always been talking, I'd always been on camera. I'd been building that skill set, not because I thought it would make me rich, but because I enjoyed it um, and I wanted to keep on building it. And that led to opportunities. Um, so uh, a bit of Instagram, a bit of social media, uh, and and other things which which have been compounding over the years, and a skill set which I've been fostering led to some TV opportunities, and those TV opportunities were very organic, they're very organic, and yeah, um, you know, someone contacted me on social media on Instagram saying, would you like to do this and would you like to do that? There's a certain amount of luck involved, I think, but you know. If you think about what, what what led to it and what I was doing ten years beforehand, it's probably not a lot of luck. I think it was bound to happen, to be honest. Um, so uh, around 2015, 2016, 17, that was when we had a lot of interest. But we, me and my twin brother, because there's, there's two of us and, and two twin doctors, is you know it's, it's, it's quite an opportunity, and and, and there's so there's, a, there's an obvious amount of. Um, you know, there's, 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 there's an obvious selling point there. There's a, there's a narrative there, which, which is quite good to, uh, it's quite obvious. So that, that was, that was um, how we, we got interest from that, from uh, media corporations and production companies. And from then it was about, you know, creating, um, you know, again, a media narrative. What are we going to make some TV about? So where we are now, where we are now is that we have an agent you know, my twin brother, we have an old twins brand as well as personal brands. Um, and we have a, we appear on a TV show called Operation Ouch and, and, and that's really fun, that's really exciting. And of course that's about medicine and, and teaching kids um, biology and, and debunking myths and legends. Um, and that's, that's a lot of fun. And there's going to be a lot of exciting things in the future. Um, you know, watch the space. Anything you can share with us? Get get people a bit excited about. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, being as vague as I can, um, we're going to be going on lots of adventures um, to the desert, climbing mountains. Um, you know, really exposing ourselves in the elements um, and showing what the human body can do, um, pushing the human body, and uh, competing. 
and having your water thrown over to you. So. <laughs> I can imagine. And here's the thing. So, I mean, growing up, I felt I had very few, I had really few um, role models that mirrored me or my life, um, especially the way I looked because, I mean, I wasn't the most athletically gifted. I cannot sing really cannot sing. In fact, it's so bad it angers people how badly I sing. And so when I was growing up, the only the only role models we had were singers or footballers or I was really an Ameri- into American football from a young age. So American footballers, basketball players and Denzel Washington and Will Smith, who we might not want to talk about just now. But um, <laughs> one of the things... And I'm not trying to be obsequious here, but one of the things is, do you feel that you feel like a role model for kids who who look like you and I, who might not see themselves in a in a show in a in more of an entertainment light? People who who want to study, who care about their books about biology or chemistry or physics and seeing you guys doing your thing, do you consider yourself a role model and or do you appreciate how that will inspire people? Absolutely. 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 And, and not, not in a, not in a uh, arrogant way, I hope, but I, I see that in, in, in a, I want to inspire myself. I want to inspire my, 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 you know, what would my younger self feel and and you know how would they respond if 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 they were to see me and the, I, I think i am that why because i try to be that I'm, I'm i'm trying to inspire and and i also get inspired a lot by people i'm someone who gets inspired and i'm trying to inspire actively aggressively i'm, tr- I'm trying to do that I'm, I'm thinking about how this is going to look in 10 years time um and what people can learn from me um and 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 how i'm going to make people feel and how i'm going to empower people actively doing that um, so I would say yes, and and if not, um, I'm trying to be. <laughs> okay, I like that. I really like that answer. Aggressive inspiration. I love it. <laughs> so before we wrap up, I want one more to ask you one more thing. Now, this is a really hard one. What advice would you give the next guest coming on this show, without knowing anything about them? advice as to just general advice life advice or even worst comes to worst dealing with me <laughs> okay so I split that into two things so the first one easiest one dealing with you as a as a sort of podcast host um, I think uh, I think the most valuable thing that that, that they can share is um, the hardest lessons that, that they learned and how they learned those those lessons and what they would change if they were to go back what they would change if they would change anything at all and just the key things which led them to where they are today um, I think it's important to get those messages across very, very clearly and the other thing other advice that I would give to the person coming on here after me is 10 years from now 10 years from now their future self looking at their current self so in 10 years time looking at their current self what advice would you give to your current self right now 
what advice, what advice do, would, would, do you need to hear from that person in the future? That's strong. I like that. That that that's really impactful. I think the best advice quite often comes from people who are like us, and or or ideally ourselves. And if you ever, if you've ever done any sort of um, tracking or video tracking, where sorry, what I mean by that is if you leave yourself little video notes like I've done in the past about things that you want to do, or if you say to yourself, "This is what I want you to be doing in a year," and you go back and watch that, are you going to be, are you going to be disappointed with yourself or you're going to be proud of yourself and that I that's what you've just said and actually that's significantly better way than I just said it um and I think that's really good that's fantastic so listen Dr Daniel Laya the 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 fly doctor thank you so much for coming on and we of course will be watching your career with interest and I'd love it in a few years time when you've slowly taking over the UK um, to come back and, and tell us more about what you've been up to. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun and uh, it was good to reflect on these things and obviously hear about your successes as well. And clearly you're a very inspirational guy doing your own business ventures. So yeah, I've definitely got lots to learn from you. <laughs> you're too kind. Listen, thank you so much. That was our interview with Dr. Daniel Alaya. Lots to take in there, lots to unpick. Really, really honoured that he had the time to spend with us explaining some of his stories, telling us a bit more about what he went through. I can't wait to speak to more people. We've got quite a few guests coming up, and I promise this time it won't just be a couple of quick podcasts and done. We're planning to share some really, really fascinating stories. I'm so excited, I'm stoked, and I can't wait for you guys to get involved. Listen, the last thing, wherever you're listening to, if it's on Apple Music, if it's on Spotify, if you're on Tidal, please do me the honour. Hit subscribe and give us a like. It'll do massive things for us and help us help us to build a community. And I thank you guys once again. You have a great day.